Woohoo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday. It's Tuesday. I'm feeling extra relaxed yeah. and good and energized on this Tuesday. It's a good one. I think you're feeling extra good because you just housed an entire package of carrots. And the entire time you're doing it, I am just like, Megan, do not do this. This is not wise. You are pregnant right now. There's not room for those carrots. We both know that you're going to be farting up such a storm when we're watching TV tonight and you're going to be like, I am uncomfortable. Why am I uncomfortable? And it's because you're housing fucking carrots. Those were some non-consensual carrots. And you know what? I watched you. Once you told me that, I was like, I'm just going to sit here and yeah. snap into them extra hard. I was like, <laughs> just to piss you off. And you know what? It was great. And I didn't eat. I mean, it was, we have like a really big bag of carrots. Yeah. I probably ate like 20 of them. You ate so many more than 20, but it worked out for you because you ended up going to the bathroom after our uh, podcast preparation, which is a huge uh, milestone within pregnancy. Every time you can go, we celebrate it uh, gloriously. So one of those moments that, you know, I am not always right. I have my uh, interventions that I imagine in my head. Sometimes they just don't work out. I kind of feel like a dog sometimes in pregnancy. So the yeah. first time that we brought Addie home, we were so excited whenever she pooped outside. Yeah. I remember it being 6 a.m. and we're standing outside of our apartment complex and I'm like, she pooped! <laughs> she pooped! Screaming at the top of my yeah. lungs, realizing that I'm probably waking up all of our neighbors in this process. And I basically announced the same thing anytime I go to the bathroom these days. Oh, it's so incredible. Um, yours have fewer worms too. Uh, just Maybe. To, just, yeah, I guess I wasn't looking. Um, perhaps I need to check them out too. Um, but yeah, so things are going great. You're absolutely crushing this process and we've been sleeping like babies, which brings us to the major recommendation of the SWAT podcast this week. If you get nothing else from the podcast, listen up right now. And Megan, what is that? This is a totally unsponsored recommendation. Yeah. In fact, I don't even know the brand name of what it is that we bought. But this week, we invested in a mat- a memory foam mattress topper pad. Yeah. And it is incredible. I can't even tell you like what type it is because I went to Amazon Prime and typed in memory foam mattress pad. Yeah. I clicked whatever had a decent amount of ratings and could arrive by the next day. So don't even know what it is. But it has been game changing for us. So- I, I don't know. I was kind of like, eh, like mattresses are overrated. We have a cheap one. It's yeah. totally fine. Then we slept on this and I my world has been changed. <laughs> it's been so good. I'll wake up at 2 a.m. and just be like, I'm comfortable right now. I feel good. Uh, do you remember the girthiness of it? Like how thick it was? Three inches. <laughs> three inches. You it know was, what? That's girthy on the on the memory foam mattress pad scale. I think three inches is the perfect length. I think I'm just going on the record <laughs> to say that I'm 100% confident in that. Isn't it, Megan? Three inches, perfect? 100%. Perfect. There's a reason we're together. But that I think it's been a great experience for us. We've been sleeping good. So go onto Amazon or wherever you do this and get one if you have just a mattress that isn't meeting every one of your standards. Like This makes a huge difference for recovery. Both of us have been feeling way better. And it was a simple fix that Megan absolutely crushed it on. So thank you, Megan. There was a deep Twitter thinker that back in the day posted this diagram of different interventions that you could take for recovery yeah. and for performance gains. And he placed a mattress pad in it. it was is like this like very elaborate diagram of different performance gains you could get from various things and mattress pad he placed it like kind of similar to strength in terms <laughs> of the performance gains that you could get from it and I was like that's bullshit yeah and then I woke up this morning and I was like I kind of understand that fancy ass diagram <laughs> well I think his was about mattresses and those can run you many thousands of dollars and this ran you how much do you think do you remember I think it was like 180 yeah which is like we're gonna have this on for the next five years assuming it doesn't get too stained by 
human poop um, from the baby, not from you. You're actually really good at controlling where it goes. It just doesn't come out nearly enough. Um, so yeah, it's been great. It's been amazing. The other thing is I've been constructing like pillow forts on there and yeah. that's been fantastic. I feel like it's part of this like nesting routine. So I have this elaborate pillow fort to be able to sleep at night and you just never know what's going to come out. I have like a pillow pit on there. Yeah. The other night I pulled out your shirt from underneath the pillow <laughs> fort because you gave it to me to put over my eyes at some point. And I was like, further, does this like further confirmation that I'm a dog. Yeah. I need someone, your shirt that smells good and smells like you to be able to com- be comfortable and sleep at night. You've been crushing it past 31 weeks and not just that. Best news ever, podcast listeners, we are coming to you with three healthy human hearts and one healthy dog heart. So I, I have a healthy heart, but that's been good. Baby has a healthy heart, but that's been good. But new breaking news is Megan has a healthy heart. Way to break down that math. Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> Actually, I mean, if you count the like 20 flies in our farmhouse right now, we probably have like 25 healthy hearts in this yeah. equation. Plus all those worms. Yeah. I'm sure they're doing very healthy. Exactly. Hearts are just bounding over here. It's yeah. great. Yeah, no, last week I got the incredible news that my heart looks good on scans. I'm not having like palpitations anymore. I can walk up a hill. Yeah. It is the best gift. I didn't think I was going to get here until postpartum. And now I can start to exercise a little bit <laughs> and I have endorphins again and oh, it's just so great. So okay, we went in to get an echocardiogram last week. So it's like an ultrasound of the heart and um, those results came in that night and we had decided not to look at them, but I guess they popped up early. So Megan just glanced and we go over and just break down in tears. This is so unexpected, so great. But I want the listeners to know, what did you do in the last nine weeks before we got these results? Because I think when we say you haven't been exercising, people might not fully understand the scope of it. A load of nothing. Yeah. Actually, that being said, I did do some like strength stuff, which was my That's saving true. grace. And I prepared my pelvic floor for the demands <laughs> of pregnancy to come. But that was really the like excitement of my day. Yeah. I basically just sat on the couch and cracked away at manuscripts, which are the foundation of my PhD dissertation for yeah. nine, 10 weeks on end and ate mac and cheese. You were getting like a thousand steps a day at times. Like I was so proud of you because you were like really much, you were just a hundred percent. This is about health. This is about baby and you're going to make it happen. And you applied the same diligence that you do to training to not training. And it was a great lesson. And I just think something everyone can learn. So now that you're back, you're quote unquote back. What does that mean? What are you doing? You got your endorphins. Now you're bringing this big podcast energy. Where is it coming from? I shockingly have endorphins off of incredibly low Watts and yeah. very slow walks. <laughs> so I am a deconditioned human right now. I think between pregnancy and my heart and not doing anything besides furious writing the keys on my computer for the last 10 weeks I am so deconditioned and it's humbling it's very humbling but it's also I think that's the cool part about exercise is that wherever we start there's a foundation to grow and build and I can really only go up from here Actually, I mean, I actually, as I'm saying that, I'm a little yeah. afraid. I'm like, well, actually, I have gone backwards in the past. I can't go back from here. But I mean, for example, my first bike, I did 12 minutes at 69 watts, yeah. which arguably I could have done that at age four and felt <laughs> a whole lot better. And it's it's just really fascinating to see, like, you know, starting at this whole new baseline and just understanding that this is going to be the new process of building. Yeah. Often on this podcast, we talk about breakthrough fitness. It's not often that we talk about kindergarten fitness, (laughs) which is what Megan's bringing right now. But I mean, it's amazing to see, and I can't wait to 
see how this whole journey unfolds, especially when that baby's out of you and you can get moving a little bit more. But just so much joy going on in this house right now. And we're going to bring you tons of really cool topics today using that joy, just channeling it straight into your eardrums. It's so amazing to have endorphins back yeah. again. I kind of forgot. I mean, I, it was, I just subsisted, you know, off of just like very, very minor life excitement for 10 weeks. Yeah. And I felt like I was trying to like check off the days of pregnancy. And now I'm excited to wake up each day and I don't have that feeling of like wanting time to pass, which isn't something I, I always love. And it's been such a great like new brain state to be in. Yeah, it's been amazing. So uh, rate and subscribe to the podcast if you like it. It's recently been breaking through. So um, definitely give it five stars and subscribe. Um, also, before we get going on all of our amazing topics, I um, want to give the promo to athleticgreens.com slash swap. Uh, they've been awesome. And I've actually gone, I've shifted a little bit. I've started taking it in the AM again. Um, so I used to, I moved into the PM and found that like I was getting too excited at night. I think because I have this um, Pavlov's response to just get my mouth watering whenever I start taking it. So I've started taking it in the AM. have interestingly noticed a little bit of a blunted heart rate response on hard effort. So I'm still performing the same way, but my heart rate is just a few beats lower. Maybe that's fitness. Has that um, changed perceived exertion at all? No, well, I mean, I'm very uh, positive. I have positive associations when I look down at my heart rate. So that's been really interesting. And, um, you know, again, we are the biggest fans, athleticgreens.com slash swap, and they support the podcast. We love them. That actually aligns with what I tell the athletes that I work with that take Athletic Greens. Typically, sometimes I see actually that B vitamins in the afternoon or evening can make people stay awake at night. Interesting, yeah. And so taking them, you know, Athletic Greens has a great array of B vitamins. And so taking that in the morning is a helpful way to prevent feeling too energetic at night. Yeah, so I've been doing exactly what they say on the container. I have it mixed uh, when I go to sleep at night and I take it when I come down and it's just a, it's just an invigorating experience. It, it gets me going with those, that taste of lawn clippings that I so crave <laughs> every AM. Actually, when I come back, I haven't been doing it in pregnancy. Yeah. When I come back postpartum, I have a long list of things I want to do again. And drinking long clippings is like number one <laughs> on that list. I'm really excited for it. See, it's perfect because like while you're breastfeeding, I'm like, I don't think it's appropriate to give the baby athletic greens technically, but if we give it to him indirectly oh, via the yeah, breast. Exactly. Is that, I think that's probably okay. Indirect via the breast. This should be the, <laughs> the next tagline of athletic greens. <laughs> Let's do it. So uh, we'll see what happens there. Okay, so tons of great topics today. We're going to be going over um, Nico Young, Killian's UTMB training, amazing question that came in on um, – pro athletes, an amazing question that came in on athletes that are going through grief. Um, so let's get right to it. And the first thing we want to say is, oh, hell yeah, Nico Young. He um, is an absolute superstar runner at Northern Arizona University. He's the high school record holder in the 3K and 2K, one of the best runners in the world. And just this past week, he came out as gay on social media. And it was in such a beautiful, wise post and it filled my heart with so much joy. And we wanted to read his post because I think yeah. the way that he did it was, I mean, it was so true to his soul and also really uplifting to others who might be going through challenges, whether it's identity or even just like working to define yourself over time. And so we wanted to read this because it's so good. He said, hi, I'm Nico and I'm gay. This may come as a shock to some of you, but this is something I've always known and have finally decided to share with the world. I like guys, not girls. Anyone who tells you that being gay is a choice is wrong. I am living proof that it is not a choice. It is something I have always known and been aware of, but I've kept silent out of fear of rejection. I have struggled to accept myself, but in coming more proud and happy with who I am. 
I have realized that the only reason I never liked this part of who I am was because of how society has told me, not because of how I actually feel. Mm. This is a quality of myself, as well as so many other people that should be accepted and celebrated just at the same time as a straight person's identity is. I want and hope to be a representative and advocate for others like me. I want anyone who is struggling with who they are to know that you are never alone, that the people who truly matter to you will always be there to love and support you. If people choose to walk out of your life because of who you are, then they never deserve to be in your life in the first place. My name is Nico Young, and I'm proud to be gay. Oh my God, what a amazing post. You know, and what he's describing there about, um, you know, the thinking about how others might feel, and, and I'm sure the comments and other things that he's internalized over time, it's just incredibly powerful. And, um, you know, I think there's probably some listeners that are like, oh yeah, he's gay, big deal. And, the, and I'm like, Gosh, from hearing how people go through that coming out process, it is so wildly difficult. And so we just want to say send tons of love to him, but also to literally everyone out there that feels like there might be some way you are different, whatever that is, like different than the majority. Like in that difference, there is so much beauty, so much hope, so much optimism. Um, But I think it's like all about living the full nature of that identity. That's a beautiful sentiment. And I also think about it too, in terms of performance. I mean, Nico has been a crusher and I feel like him harnessing and really holding true to who he is on an outward level to be able to just express that in his daily lived experience. I think that's going to elevate his performance. And we've seen this across a number of other examples. I mean, we think back to, we talked extensively um, on our podcast about Leah Thomas, um, who an incredible swimmer and in the process of, uh, transitioning to becoming a woman and you know in that in that fully lived experience elevating transgender rights yeah. um she went on her performance was remarkable yeah. and i think the times when you like shed that pain associated with not being that fully embodied self we're actually going to get into this ahead how oftentimes like running with emotional pain yeah. can translate into physical pain and i think you know nico is going to shed that and be this fully embodied self and i think his performance is going to take off I and i'm pumped i cannot wait and so i think the big message there for everyone is that you're never alone no matter what you might be going through in your own head whether it's about your identity or something else or other things you know we talked about forgiveness last week and just you don't have to like live alone in these thoughts when you open up you're gonna get the outpouring of love and support that nico did and um so big thing hell yeah nico and i think it brings up a quote from mike tyson which came up on the documentary untold so this was on christy martin that we mentioned the other week um and she was also um living in the closet Uh, publicly for most of her professional career and then she came out but before she came out her abusive partner her abusive male partner had always told her if you ever do this people are not going to actually love you you're going to be ostracized and she had internalized that thought and when asked about that in the uh, documentary mike tyson said this sometimes we're afraid to be ourselves we don't think that people will accept us or like us we have to be something the whole community loves that's what happens all the time though our fears never actually happen but the fear of it happening causes us to do damage to ourselves and so yeah basically this is about let's drop fear get some love like whatever you're going through it is shared i promise by so many people and even the people that don't share it directly are going to be there with love and support and if they're not fuck them i was gonna say i think actually that's exactly where i was going (laughs) is that there are these communities out there there is a community of love for whatever existence you embody out there and even if it's not your immediate community you will find those communities in the process and that's so cool yeah on a much lesser scale like you know these are fundamental things to their identity but i think all of us can announce to it like 
I remember caring so much about fitting in, um, whether that was like in elementary school, middle school, high school. And the whole time I ended up having to play a little bit of a character that maybe I wasn't like it had elements of myself, but like it wasn't fully me. And even in college, I felt like if I was my true self all the time, I'd be alone. Like I would never have a, a, you know, a partner or whatever. And then I met you and you gave me permission to do that. And I appreciate that so fucking much. Um, but I wish I could have done it anyway. And so I, I, if I were 12 right now, seeing Nico's post, you know, he's a lot of really young fans. I would be, I hope I would see that and be like, hell yeah. That's like the best excuse to just let your freak flag fly, whatever it is, whether it's making jokes about three inch mattress pads or like embodying your true lived identity, whatever that is. I'm also curious too about, you know, the brain is obviously developing a ton at that age, you know, from age 12, as you were mentioning on up into like the early to mid twenties. And I'm curious about what happens when you are truly yourself in those periods of really high brain development and what that does in terms of setting up your trajectory for the rest of life. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, I think that the more we can open up about all this stuff, the better. It's why we're so, you know, why we advocate so vocally about transgender athlete rights, for example. It's because like eventually we'll be looking at that just as coming out in uh, Instagram post in that it, there's just a, a whole upwelling of love and support. And I just can't wait for that day. Um, but in the meantime, we just want to celebrate Nico for being this amazing person he is. Um, and so let's get to a Patreon question. Is that okay? Yeah, let's do that. Awesome. I'm pumped on this. Um, do you want to read it or should I? We've had incredible questions rolling through on Patreon. And we spend our Friday episodes going through and answering those questions. Yeah. Kind of in a rapid fire way. It's it's kind of, it, it's great in terms of continuing. It's like continuing education for us. I love it. Yeah. Um, but this question is great. And I chose this question because we see this situation often in coaching. And I wish we could highlight just how common this is. The question is, Megan and David, you are the lights of my week every Tuesday and now Fridays on Patreon. <laughs> and more recently, you've been unknowingly helping me through a hard time. I experienced a breakup with a long-term partner, which came as a shock. And it threw my whole world for a loop. I was confident we were going to have a long future together. Since the breakup two weeks ago, my heart rate on runs has been sky high. 150s to jog around the block. What gives? Any advice on how to handle training and how to hold confidence, I will be okay going forward. Thanks for all you do. Big huzzah love. Oh my gosh. I am so sorry to the listener for going through this. Um, you know, to use one of my old phrase, it sucks shit, you know, and um, eventually at the end of this thing, we're going to get to one of my other phrases about, about this, but for, for now, let's just grieve this because I think it is a grief process. And that gets to the, the heart of the question is that, um, you know, the pain associated with this is not just emotional or mental. It is, has physical embodiments and that will play out in your athletic nature, whether it's a breakup, whether it's another stress, um, whether it's basically anything you're going through, whether it's anything you're holding on um, inside. And I think we all have that, those types of things. And I'm glad that you're highlighting the components of physical pain here. I was actually listening, I've been listening to the audiobook called Chatter, which yeah. goes into how we talk about, how we talk to ourselves and kind of like some of the psychological mindsets that we set up for ourselves yeah. and how that translates into performance and emotional states and all different types of things. It's actually, I very rarely read, like, I would say it's like both psychological and self-help book, which yeah. is like not something I usually read, but it's kind of fun on audio when you're walking on the travel to be like teach, teach me psychology this is great i like this as you get back to exercise we're gonna have so many more things like insights that we get because you haven't had that time to like listen to these things granted you're probably gonna be back to ludicrous pretty quickly here i assume yeah exactly as exercise starts ramping up as they get past 69 watts yeah yeah ludicrous is coming on it's gonna be nice yeah i'm maybe really at, pumped maybe at 70 watts you go to like 
I don't know, Avril Lavigne. And then ludicrous, you say, for breaking the triple digits. If you get to 100 watts, that's ludicrous time. Oh, shit. That's backseat windows up. That's how you like to put power into those pedals. I'm so pumped for that day. That's going to be amazing. But anyway, so Chatter highlighted this study, um, and it's called Social Rejection Shares Somatosensory Representations with Physical Pain. And it's published in PNAS, which <laughs> is my favorite journal of all time. I don't know how anyone can keep a straight face when talking about that journal. but It's a three-inch long journal, I'm sure. <laughs> so PNAS is the journal. It's the journal name. I actually don't know what it stands for. I should i just every time i see it i'm like penis <laughs> <laughs> i just like that i'm so mature actually there was once when i was presenting in class yeah. and i was like the pe- there was a, a study published in penis that said <laughs> because that's how i say it in my head all the time it was really great but anyway the study was published in 2011 and they set up this really interesting paradigm for a study so they had people who were recently um experienced an unwanted breakup mm-hmm. they put them in an fmri machine to image their brain and they had these participants bring in a photo of their of their ex-partner and sit in the fMRI machine and think about rejection. And then um, in a a later later follow-up with these same participants, they introduced noxious stimuli. So stimuli that were causing this like hot temperature and introducing a a feeling of pain for these participants. And the brain areas that lit up in response to the physical pain and in response to the rejection of the breakup were almost exactly the same. And so these, these brain areas were the secondary somatosensory cortex, the dorsal posterior insulin these are for neuroscience nerds out there (laughs) but these are the areas that are involved in processing physical pain interesting and we see this often i mean i think so often these emotional responses and this emotional pain becomes manifested as physical pain and when we're athletes relying on our physical nature for activity and exercise those cross signals can become very challenging in that initial grief process yeah so interesting. i'm trying to like analogize since i didn't really have any you know partners that would cause this stimuli well actually one yeah. I broke up with you. That's true. Remember in college? And you actually took it a different direction. You ran, I broke up with you for like 48 hours and yeah. you ran the best race of your life. Yeah. And I won a national championship when you <laughs> broke up with me. Hey, if you know my history, I won a national championship in 2012. Came out of nowhere. No, wasn't included on any of the previews. I beat the guy who won the U.S. National Cross Country Championships. And uh, it's because I was running on pure sadness. So something happened no. in my brain. Well, here's the thing is, I don't think it was sadness. I think it was angst. Yeah, angst. It was a it was a positive framing of sadness. It was like a empowered. I remember listening to um, uh, "It's a Great Day to Be Alive" by Travis Tritt, which is a song about essentially grieving loss, but you're howling at the moon. Ah, woo! Um, and so I was listening to that and running very, very fucking fast for a few days. It was a weird time in my life. And I don't know if I'll ever match that fitness that you gave me by breaking up with my ass. I am so sorry about that. And I have like forgiven many, many times over, but I did gift you a national championship. So in some ways you should be thanking me. But actually, I think what's interesting about that though, is I think in this study, they asked those participants to think about rejection. And I think that it highlights how over time, it's really important to mentally process grief, trauma, breakups with a mental health therapist, or even just like, you know, a social support system in your life. So that when you think about, you know, your partner, or you view these images of your ex-partner, it's not rejection that comes up. It's harnessing these different emotions that can be less associated with physical pain. Yeah. And I mean, this is trauma, right? Like yeah. this person is going through some sort of trauma. But my guess is that it's a spectrum that applies to every sort of stress you experience because those, you know, the trauma response to a, a breakup with a potential long-term partner has, you know, the way it increases your cortisol is not that much different than the way um, being constantly stressed might. And that has underlying, you know, responses throughout your physiology. And so harnessing that I think is really important, not just in these times of a, acute struggle, like this is really tough. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, it's something that's going to take time, just like the grief process always does. But for all of us to think about, okay, running needs to be fun. My athletics need to be fun, not just because of that makes it more enjoyable, but because that's where my physiology will perform its best and respond its best. And that's why like, we're such big fans of music, of making jokes on this podcast, of bringing you energy. Because if you're listening to this while you run, we want you to feel like you can fly up hills with a little bit of our, you know, big three inch energy given to you or whatever it is. I think actually that's a great point because I think oftentimes if you go out the door, your body is expecting some certain level of physical pain because you're running. And I think if you bring in new context, so like if you shift the context, if you go to a new place to run, if you listen to new music, if you invite people to run with you, you're almost shifting yourself from that physical pain sensation. And it might also help uncouple the two through the physical pain route. Um, And so I'm really, I mean, I think there's different ways that you can approach the situation, whether it's changing up how you perceive physical pain and then also changing up how you're processing the emotional stimuli. And I think both are really important and can be great tools in, in these tough times. Yeah, it's fascinating that in that study, it was just a picture of an X, right? right? Like, yeah. Not even something that's that acute or like brings up, they're not saying, hey, remember this time that they told you these sweet nothings about how you would last forever and you're the only person for them. And then you get angry and then whatever comes out, like, you know, it's, it's causing, it's just the weak association with it. And imagine for this listener, it's like right now, there's just no choice. Know that it's going to be okay though, right? Like you're going to get through this. You're going to be stronger than ever from it. Um, but that's so hard to see in the moment. So like for now, it's okay for it just to suck shit. And know that it's common too. Yeah. I mean, I think you're not alone in this process. We have coached, I have coached several, several athletes who have gone through this. And at times, sometimes I'm even like, is this overtraining syndrome? Are yeah. they sick? Is there something going on? And they work through it. And they usually work through it as incredibly resilient, stronger humans. And it's it's a journey and a process that I think is as foundational to their life as many other things that they go through. And so just know that that like you're not alone but also that there's no set timeline for this either like I think grief knows no timeline and I think give yourself that room to you know just take a break from running if needed um you know if it truly is like physically challenging and also leave your heart monitor at the door oh I was gonna say that yeah there's nothing worse than like being halfway up the hill from of your driveway and seeing your heart rate at 150 I have been there because it creates this like feedback loop where you're like oh fuck this is not great so I think absolutely leave the heart yeah and just go out so slow we're gonna get into actually the physiology of slow training through Killian's work. And I think it's really important here. And, you know, I can really empathize um, because one time we got delivery pizza and the entire bottom was burned. <laughs> and like, it was a really tough moment for me. No, I'm just kidding. We, I, I want to say like, we love you so much. And um, I also want you to know that we are holding on on lightly. Like, yes, it feels like your whole world is eclipsing right now, but the sun will come back out. Yeah. And you know, the, the way I was going to end it is the related quote is people that give conditional love unconditionally suck shit. And sometimes when you're in a relationship, you can't see that because you don't know the full scope of the person in the relationship. So it doesn't mean you can't be friends with this person. It just means that it's for the best and how that unfolds can't exactly predict, but we know your future is going to be incredible. And that includes your athletic future too. Also, if you're an athlete and you're ever going through a breakup, David is an incredibly helpful person to talk to because I feel <laughs> like, because you always have things to say about the partner without even knowing them yeah, that are, yeah. you're, you kind of like channel this anger. You're like, well, fuck them. <laughs> and sometimes it's the most empowering thing that you need to know. I think my secret skill that isn't really used very often, we use it sometimes in the hater of the week or whatever, is as a roast comedian. Like, <laughs> yeah, we, we not, both, yeah. It's not my style. You're really great at it as well. Um, like, I can talk shit like it ain't anyone's business, especially about like things that might not feel like 100% real. And so. I think because you're so positive and yeah. uplifting, when you talk shit, it means 
extra business <laughs> it's great and so if you're struggling with a breakup like david's an incredible email person. Me. yeah email me david will yeah you'll send at least an, a meme or a phrase or something that will be instrumental for your future yeah i just don't share that email publicly i often think about dude how many things have i said like that that could get me canceled if someone really wanted to well it's also funny too when if the relationship does come back together yeah. and you were like fuck that person <laughs> their soul is not worthwhile to be on earth and then they get back together and you're like oh this is great yeah yeah which has happened before yeah. but th- i think everyone knows I'll, I'll be right back on board so yeah for this listener if yeah if something happened to happen we also will love, we'll love that person again uh but in the meantime i hope they die <laughs> in a painful way not in like a good way maybe they're like in by sharks when they fall through a sewer grate or something fun like that. Okay, <laughs> let's get to a fun question. Okay, this is from Finn Melanson. So if you don't listen to the Single Track podcast, it is taking the trail world by storm. Uh, he's a great interviewer. He has really um, interesting, provocative, um, intelligent thoughts about the trail space. We're big fans. Um, and he tagged me on Twitter this week and he said, Mountain Roach, in your latest episode, you and Megan very briefly touched on the merits of, quote, your livelihood depending on your physical nature, um, which we actually have in the last two episodes. I'd love to hear a bigger episode topic as it relates to being a pro trail runner. And love this question. So fucking cool. Something we think about all the time. It's something that doesn't just apply to pro runners in how you think of your physical nature and your self-worth coming together in a Venn diagram of ultimate sadness. And I think everyone experiences this on some on some level. Claire Gallagher was actually what led us to talk about this. Definitely. Um, and it was a big reason that she's in a PhD program right now. Is yeah. It's really, really challenging to be a pro athlete and to rely on your physical nature for a living when your physical nature is prone to breaking down. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that. I mean, it's going to break down. That's Unless you're a genetic freak, that's just the inevitable nature of being a pro runner. And I think we're going to dive into the different layers of that. Yeah. And just how challenging that is and different ways to combat it too, because I think there are some great solutions to working around that. And, you know, being a pro runner and feeling like you're fulfilled intellectually and physically. Yeah. You know, so I'm looking at you right now. You got that sexy stomach out. You're like looking fine. <laughs> I don't know if sexy is the best way to describe this baby bump going on. Everything about you is sexy, um, but you're looking fine as hell. But you know what all that stuff is that I'm seeing right now? It's a meat sack is the answer. <laughs> that is the correct answer. Actually, it's two meat sacks. It's my meat sack and it's baby's meat sack. That's true. We got a little meat sack coming out soon. Yeah. Um, and so as you say, you know, every athlete comes into context with this unless they're a genetic outlier. It's like actually everyone will at some point um, sooner rather than later. I think it's one of the magical parts of being an athlete is that you get to know like the bones and gristle that make up your body in a way that a lot of people don't. A lot of people think of themselves almost as brains with, you know, this... Thing attached to it and we get really well acquainted with it and i think for pro athletes or people that rely on their bodies or judge their self-worth by their bodies in any way eventually you can become the negative parts of being a meat sack and that is totally dissociated from what we actually are which is the background awareness that makes us into these conscious sentient beings and when those things get dissociated whether it's in a job as a professional athlete or it's a recreational athlete or it's even someone that is like a sex worker yeah. or something like it can can be such a mindfuck. And so let's start with a hypothetical. Imagine you wake up with a pain in your foot, kind of where the ankle meets the foot or whatever. You know what? That happens to so all athletes. It all probably time. happened to 99% of runners. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I know I've done that. You have too. Um, most athletes, if you wake up and you even have a little bit of a thought about this, will be like, oh, well, maybe I should rest. Maybe I should run. But it's just about like the loss of the activity itself. And a pro athlete that goes through that same thing thinks about that, and they're probably smart enough to know that that's right where the talus is. And if you have a talus stress fracture, you're moderately fucked for the rest of the season. And that extrapolation process goes to 
okay, this isn't just an activity I love. This is something that I rely on for my well-being, for my financial um, life, for all these other things that broadens it out in a way that almost always hits your self-worth button. And so it can be like an ultimate, ultimate mindfuck. Oh, it's such a mindfuck. And I would make the argument that I think recreational athletes experience yeah. that too I mean I think it's kind of ubiquitous when you wake up with foot pain to be like is this my daily is this is my navicular yeah. to kind of go through that like differential diagnosis in your head and also think about and contextualize to the grand scheme of things in terms of the long-term plan but I think that extra added element of putting food on the table yeah. and not having so I think when I think about like traditional careers there's always a big like brain component to it like the brain is the driving force behind the career it's like the yeah. intellectual thing driving it and I think like recreational athletes often have that to lean onto. And I think for, for I, that's where I just see the distinction of pro athletes is because I think that experience of waking up and being like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is, you know, a disaster is yeah. ubiquitous. I think it's just the added nature of that being your, I mean, it's your, I, I guess I, you could say it that it's like, it's your, your job contract. Oh, for sure. hundred yeah. percent. I mean, I think the job contract point is the best one to make for people to understand this that might not fully like have lived it. Uh, you know, 100% of the way. So like, that's just a little injury. Bad races, even worse. So let's think about the job approach. So most people have intellectual pursuits for their job. Um, and when you do that, there's a much closer tie to that awareness element I talked about. Like if you're using your brain, even if you're working in a spreadsheet or something, you can be like, okay, this thing that is doing the work is me. It is the um, every, It is what is watching the water flow by in the stream. It is not the you know the rocky stream um, and I think that that can be really heartening it can be really beneficial um, and that only starts to break down I think really when people realize their jobs might like cause damage or hurt people mm-hmm. and then it can make them think they're a bad person which gets into some of the similar problems but for physical pursuits you're like okay I am tying this thing I deeply care about and it matters to me directly to the meat sack. I'm tying it to my hamstring tendon. Yes. There is nothing in life I want to tie to my hamstring tendon. No. No. Grinnan, maybe your hamstring tendon because after it was oh, repaired. Mine is surgically fixed. It's got like 2,000% 2, 2, strength compared to how it was before. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, in good times, that's great. Like for a pro athlete that just wins, won the rut this weekend, hell fucking yeah. It is fun to be tied to your meat sack because you got a sweet ass meat sack. That is some grade A prime rib. Um, but that's not the way it works forever. But I also think the challenge with that too is arguably those athletes have gone through a And once you go through a setback, I think for a lot of athletes, it becomes a a light, light version form of PTSD where like that setback is always in and rationally, it does make sense. It's always within arm's reach. And I think that's what's so challenging is that your job contract is always stepping on a rock and breaking your ankle away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that you, you know, it's not just your meat sack. Other meat sacks are coming to get yours. And it's just... (laughs) It is so hard. And I think it's something that's not really talked about for pro athletes in general. And I think in, let's say, basketball, LeBron James or something, um, those contracts are so rich that we can often people will be like, oh, well, they get paid to play a game and downplay it. And maybe that's in baseball too. But then let's go to minor league baseball, which is much more like trail running, where 90% of those athletes will never make it. They'll never make a significant amount of money, but they're going for it as hard as they can, understanding all these things. And there's a reason that when you look at the mental health analysis of minor league baseball players, it's horrible. Um, They actually just announced plans to unionize, which should help that a little bit. Um, But similarly, in trail running, it's even worse in the sense that like there are very few contracts that Mm -hmm. athletes can live by. So if an athlete is going for that, it will be so hard and not, not just so hard. I think eventually it will almost always lead to 
depressive states and mental health struggles unless they consciously extract their self-worth from the meat sack. And that's not just pro athletes. That's literally all of us, um, that you have to be enough as you are in an inherent way rather than in a, um, you know, a way that only can come out by demonstrating some physical prowess of some type. That's a great point. Also question for you, a definitional question. Does the meat sack encompass the brain? I assume not. We're making the distinction between... Well, it, it, it encompasses the brain in a tissue sense, but not in the conscious not, sense. Not in the, not in the like, sen- yeah, the sentient brain feeling sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh, you know, the, the meat sack creates those conscious thoughts. Yes, that- it's, it's the neurons that are making the hamstring tendons... Uh, tendons Activate. Activate. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Sure. That, I think, yeah, I think that's actually a really important distinction. That- but it's not, it's not the intellectual nature of it. And I think that's how you can actually get through this process partially is that I think the more that you can bring like, well, one, I think crafting identities that yeah. involve, you know, your brain and then involve so much more than who you are as based by your performance, important. But I also think there's ways to bring in intellectual pursuits yeah. into professional running, into professional sports, like whether that's starting a blog or a podcast or YouTube video or writing or doing any number, even doing like a science or research. Like there's so many ways to bring that in that don't get in the way of like that professional time. Yeah. Having gotten to coach a lot of professional athletes, we essentially see if they don't have some sort of intellectual venting process they are gonna go down really dark paths even world champions it's it's really uh stark and it's not talked about and that's really tough and that's another reason we say you are enough as you are always and unconditionally and you know obviously that needs to apply to pro athletes in this really specific way but it needs to apply to all anyone who identifies as an athlete which should be every human on the planet like um you know because we're in these meat sacks like you're you're sometimes going to have your hamstring tendon snap and just sometimes you're not going to be able to match up with some abstract definition of what you think might Mm -hmm. be possible and if you're not enough as you are always being an athlete fucking sucks like it is just a process of constant self-evaluation and people are not talking about the how that self-evaluation reflects negatively on mental health and like enjoying life and i think the challenge about that process too is that it's inherently unstable and that's part of what makes sports so special and it's unstable in the way that you know if you do 15 races by nature of being a human like three or four of those races might go poorly you might dnf you might get injured like you know perhaps your performance isn't on par and i would make the argument that like if you showed up to 15 meetings in a conventional job 15 of those will probably go pretty well or like as to like to your expectations and so I think the challenge of the process of being a runner too is that you're constantly going to have these shifting data points of like and I think it's really important to take this zoomed out view that you are not that individual data point you are not that race and that the career is a constellation of all of those and that same principle I feel like doesn't apply in traditional jobs when things are much more stable like performance reviews might come once a year twice a year and as athletes we have performance reviews Possibly like 30 times a year, even more if you consider workouts. Yeah. And the the studies say the performance reviews that they do once or twice a year are incredibly negative for mental health. So now imagine when you have, you know, in the case of an athlete that's training 300 days a year, you're having 300 of them if you really want to dig into it. And that's why it all comes back to cultivating a love of self. You know, that includes the meat sack. It also includes your consciousness, all that stuff. Like that is an active process that is not something that is natural to every person. And to some, it's way less natural than it is to others. But like, you know, Megan and I are constantly telling the other person, 
you are perfect. You are loved. And the reason is because both of us doubt it extremely, but I know it, Megan is perfect, right? Even if I know I'm, if I don't know I am. And all communities can do that. I think coaches have a huge responsibility to do this and make sure that they understand that their athletes are so much more than their results. Um, and I mean, I think it applies to everything we do that self-love is at the core of like not having an eroding self-worth when you realize that you're not you can't just imagine what you want to be and become that. You are what you are, and that has to be great as it is. And I think that has to be at the core, too. I yeah. mean, that self-love has to persist at the time when the hamstring tendon is going awry or, you know, you're, the performance isn't as strong as you want. And to have, again, to get back to that zoomed-out process, it has to be a zoomed-out self-love. So what do you think this means for, like, contracts in running? Um, since I think there's a lot more talk about this led by Finn, actually. He's really making a lot more of this transparent. Do you think there's anything that companies and athletes can consider? I think from the athletic perspective, I think the first thing that comes to mind is signing a long-term contract. I think for me as an athlete, looking back at some of the contracts I signed, if I signed a year-long contract, I was extremely stressed about getting to the next signing period, which is not a great way to think about it. Um, I was happiest under two, three, four-year contracts because it felt like I wasn't like constantly coming up to that performance review that I put a lot of pressure on myself for. So I think that's something that's really helpful too. And then some contracts also have reduction costs. So if you don't race, you know, X, Y, and Z races, if you don't race in a period of six months, et cetera, as an athlete, you have the power to negotiate those reduction clauses and I would get rid of as many of them as you can on contracts. Definitely. You can probably get rid of all of them, honestly. Like I don't think any company is going to go to bat for their reductions because as soon as that you push that, you can be like, Hey bitch, I can talk (laughs) about this publicly and you are fucked if I do. Like it is, you know, there's, this is a place where public pressure matters. And it's one reason that the lack of a union, the lack of transparency in this world makes it worse, much like the minor league players have dealt with for, you know, decades. And then the other thing too is, is I would put your intellectual pursuits on paper and make that part of the contract process. So that's whether that's like you're showing up to write blogs for a company or contributing at social events or whatever it is, like make your, make your presence and your significance beyond your running accolades, because that's going to feed into your overall overall inherent worth. And I always love that in my contracts. I think I leaned heavily on like the science focus of what we did and coming in and being like, well, if we're running for your team, that means we scientifically support your shoes. That's a good (laughs) thing. And so there's different ways to weave in your identity into these contracts. And I think the last point too, actually is pregnancy. So I think a lot of contracts have had pretty forward views on pregnancy recently. We've come a long ways from the days of Nike infamously reducing athletes contracts and pregnancy or like terminating them all together. And I think if you're, if you're an athlete that thinks about that or cares about that, make sure it's a priority when you're talking about your contracts. And, um, I think something really helpful. I love that so much. And I mean, maybe just to even take a step back to talk about something that Finn didn't ask is these contracts are not lucrative for the most part. No. And when yeah. they are, they are not lucrative in such a sense that you should be putting all of your eggs in that basket in terms of financial incentives. Like it is a passing thing, even for the Jim Walmsleys of the world. Um, well, and, um, maybe not Jim Walmsley. That's we true. Should, we should use another example. That's true. <laughs> that's a poor example. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I feel like um, Jim Walmsley, if he just showed up at like the New York Stock Exchange, they'd be like, IPO, we're going public <laughs> with that creature. Uh, he is special. Um, but for every Everyone, like I find athletes are always chasing this as if it's some meaningful thing in their existence. And yeah, it might feel really validating, but it is pure external validation. And whatever you are bringing into that contract internally is going to be what you get from the contract too. And so whether you're the type of athlete that is pursuing this or you're just someone that loves to run, remember, it's all about that internal journey. And if you can take a step back every single day, whether it's with a partner or yourself, and consciously say, I love you, Meat Sack, to yourself. Because 
if you don't do that, self-worth is always going to collapse um, right alongside the decay we all experience. See, we need a post-it note on our mirror that just says, I love you, meat sack. <laughs> For me, it says meat sack squared. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- that would be great. But actually, the, the final closing point on this is one of the days that I felt the greatest freedom was January 1st of a year that I did not re-sign with a company. Yeah. And it was like, I mean, I just didn't love the shoes. I didn't love the contract I was in. I just, it was just not a great situation for me. Yeah. And it was for me personally, like other people have loved these contracts, love the shoes, etc. And it was such a sense of freedom and joy. And I think know your psychology going in. I've been very wary to think about contracts since that point, yeah. just because I knew, I knew what it did to my psychology. And I, so I think be upfront with yourself about this, journal it out, talk it out, etc. Well, there's a problem there, Megan, because I've started to, like, I'm all about the Hoka Tectons now, which cost $200 a pair, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure they don't last a really long time. So if we still had that contract, we would save enough to put baby boy into college. So I'm just saying, for my Hoka Tecton existence, hey, Hoka, if you want to sign a contract, I'm here, and I really, really, really like your shoes, and I promise to say good things about them. David would sell a lot of Tectons. Oh my god, I fucking love them. I had to have a conversation with you. I was like, I think you're wearing these too much. They have a carbon yeah. plate in them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love them so much. Um, that's not saying they're for everyone by any means. Like, we have definitely seen a mixed bag amongst athletes. Like, um, I just wanted to briefly say, I can see why a shoe contract would be nice because I've already gone through three pairs of these things in a really short period of time. Um, oh, and then before we get to our really big topic, which is the Killian Jornet discussion, um, imagine I ended on that profound meat sack thing. I want to mention the Nike Zagama, which we talked about on earlier episodes. We've since got gotten pairs from listeners. They're amazing. Um, and... We have heard good things. Like I have not, I've been running in the Tecton so much, I haven't actually tried them, but I wear them around. They're exceedingly comfortable. They seem like kind of the perfect ultra shoe right now. They're very soft. Um, so really recommend them if you're looking for a shoe that's like a little bit like the Speed Goat, but maybe a little bit softer. Um, they they seem like really productive shoes. I like them. They're very bouncy, yeah. which I like. I, I love shoes that have a solid bounce to them. So I'm a big fan of the Nike Zagamas. I've seen mo- a lot of my, almost every athlete that I've coached loves them. Oh really? Um, so it's kind of like a, universal, that, so. a universal experience. So I've seen great results. Also, they look fly when Do you they? walk around in them, David. I'm like, that's got some sex appeal right there. <laughs> You're like, your calves look damn good. I want to bang that meat sack. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get on to Killian Jornet's training. Okay, no more meat sacks. No more meat sacks? Yeah, okay. you've officially, you, we've officially uh, used that word up. So I get 15 mentions an episode? Do you think I hit 15 there? Oh, you definitely hit 45. 45? Yes. Okay. I, I mean, if you count meat sacks squared twice, yeah, for sure. But I'm still worthy as a human. Yes. Okay, great. Okay, so Killian Jornet's UTMB training. Um, so first, before we get into that, um, we talked about this a little bit on Patreon. Last week, a video was sent in by a podcast listener where Killian was having his blood taken mid-race, like a finger prick, um, in what looked like a la- blood lactate test. And sure enough, he that was a blood lactate test. And he actually responded to my tweet of this video with this. We were do some, doing some research during the race, big test pre and post race. And during, we took lactate, glucose, and cholesterol, dot, 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 what he could take in two minutes or so. We're look, looking forward to see the results and start analyzing the measurements. I'm so excited about this because we don't have a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of blood lactate, like actually so much literature on blood lactate measurements, yeah. but not a ton in the multi-day, um, like longer, longer racing yeah. events. And I'm really curious to see what his lactate does. That being said, Killian is, he's obviously an outlier. Yeah. And so what his lactate says isn't necessarily indicative of what the rest of the population's yeah. lactate 
it's going to be. It's going to be so cool. I, also, I cholesterol. I was com- curious about that. Yeah, I have no idea. That's um, not something that's commonly measured in exercise physiology measurements of this distance. Yeah, not during the race. After yeah. the race, we'll often see the numbers go down and then rebound higher. It's very strange how all this works. Um, but I think from getting this data wherever it is, we're going to get really interesting insights. And it's one of the coolest things about Killian is that he is so science-driven. So everything he's doing in training is with a purpose. And he's done this for a really long time. You add all that together and talking about Killian's training is a great template to talk about all training, um, which I really love. And that little bit of a fawning gets to this response on that tweet from listener Gemma, who's probably listening right now. And she said, OMG to the Killian response. Does this top the Strava reply from Jim Walmsley? On a side note, I love the fan in you, especially when you have credentials yourself. We are big fans of the sport. If you had, yeah. I mean, you have to pick one. This is like choosing your, like choosing between children. Yeah. If you had to pick the kudos from Jim or this response from Killian, what would it be? Um, I probably have to cut my tongue down the middle so I couldn't answer. <laughs> it's like it, it's like splitting the baby. It just can't happen. Um, but no, I would probably choose Jim because even though he responded. Killian doesn't follow me on Twitter. Oh, man. Isn't that hard? That is hard. That's yeah. tough. That's a little bit of a burn. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of a burn. <laughs> He's like, I see your tweet. I'm going to respond, but not yeah, cool yeah. enough to follow. It's like, that's a video. Not a cool enough thought for a, to mash that follow button. Whereas Jim, we were in on the Jim ground floor. We met Jim before he was Jim. And we oh, love Jim's Jim. a great dude. Yeah. yeah. He's such a good guy. And after he whooped my ass in 2016 in a random race in Montana, he was just the kindest, most humble person. And we hung out with him for a while post-race. He's yeah. great. And yeah. so, yeah, we've been... We've, so, yes, I'm going to say Jim. That's my I'm, I'm glad bias. you're sticking with your allegiance, our family, familial allegiance there. That's great. Yeah. I actually, I love Killian's personality. I yes. was thinking about this more. So you just emphasized how science-driven he was. And he kind of has this, like, dual personality situation going on. So yeah. on, one, on, one, on one side, he's, I don't know, he has this aura of just, like, wanting to make love to the mountains. It's like, true. It's just so free-flowing. And his appreciation of nature and his like time out there is free and beautiful and then he's very science driven to the point where you know he's doing blood lactate measurements in the middle of a 100 mile race and i think the two go together so beautifully and also remind me of a goat in sport alex honald oh yeah um you know alex i feel like has a very similar personality type of like marrying the science and the love of nature and is a goat granted alex honald you put him in an fmri machine and his amygdala doesn't light up to fear (laughs) so he has a little bit of like probably a different brain circuitry but it's so fascinating how two of the goats of the sports bring that love of nature and science together yeah i I wonder if you're going to see that in if you would see that in most goats like you know when you say perhaps his amygdala doesn't activate just like normal people's do well killian has a vo2 max that breaks all the machines right Mm -hmm. and so maybe the skill that is special amongst people is almost sport specific and the generalized traits that are developed and um you know are built by these people over time are the love the genuine love of the process and the activity mixed with an analytical framework that tries to develop every single tenth of a percentage point and when you combine all those things with that one element of natural talent that just can't be taught or learned or anything you have a goat and, and that's where it comes from i actually have a feeling it's probably many elements of natural talent yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean i feel like killian has the vo2 max he has the hematocrit he has like the full profile yeah. given given just his experience in nature and sport it's remarkable yeah i'd love i wonder online actually if we do if he has published his blood work somewhere i should look at that actually because i'm writing an article on what we're going to be talking about today um for troner so what are we talking about today this all comes from an article from the watchmaker chorus uh so jim or jim um <laughs> 40 and slip two, <laughs> two men i love very much uh killian is wearing a chorus watch and they published an analysis of his training and race it was looking specifically at the four weeks before the race 
race, which is the biggest caveat of all here in the disclaimer. So yes, it has its heart rate data. It had its training zones, but this includes the hard rock recovery, the Sierra Zanol mountain race, and an asymptomatic COVID case. And so whether this snapshot is a representative sample is questionable. Um, if it's not a representative sample, whether it's anywhere close to normal is, is tough to say. What I will say is that the overarching um, framework of the zones that we're going to talk about does overlap with what he's written about training in the past and some of his past training diaries for the most part. So I think it's an interesting exercise, even if it might not be directly on point all the time. There is a ton of stuff to learn and it actually overlaps a lot with how we think about training philosophy. Yeah, so yeah. it's convenient as well. It was <laughs> affirming our biases. And so this made me love Killian even more for yeah. that. I would say this though. So when you look at his, he He's talked before, and you can add up his training to approximately 1,200 hours per year. 1,200 which hours is a year. A lot of training. Yeah. Uh, when you think about it, I've seen reports that top track athletes are doing anywhere between like 450 to 600 hours per year, yeah. or 450 to 500 even more. So he's almost doubling what top top track athletes are doing. So he's spending a lot of time training. Yeah. And we weren't quite seeing those the the parallel representation of this four week period in that broader number. But again, I think it. I think the the distribution of zones and heart rate percentiles is is probably more yeah. is representative. I mean, there's a question there of whether it's even all of the training he was doing. I figure Coros wouldn't publish it if it was just a random association of a few workouts. Um, and the fact that it does kind of fit together nicely is really interesting. Um, but what you just said there about total training volume is going to inform a lot of our discussion. So Killian does say he gets up to 1,200 hours a year, which is so high. In comparison, um, a 22 stud... 2022 study in um, sports medicine open that was on elite athlete training and, and running. So as Megan said, up to 600 hours for track athletes at the very high end and for marathoners, which you would figure is basically the same energy systems as ultras, they're only getting up to 700 at the, and that's actually at the extremes. And so Killian is pushing a level that we've never seen before. He's doing this a ton through cross training. He skis all winter. So it's a lot different in how he's accumulating those hours, but it's a different story. And we're going to try to always zoom out and make the lessons applicable to every everybody, not just the goats. That's a great point. I like to think that like 40% of that training is just making love to the mountains. Yeah. He's just out there and he's accumulating that into his total training time. <laughs> so we're really down to like, I don't know, like 800 hours or so. Yeah. You know, Sting, the singer is all about tantric sex. Mm -hmm. Killian is about tantric running, tantric <laughs> training. He's just out there doing what he loves. Um, so to start, let's break it down by zones. Um, they had a traditional five zone model, which, you know, we've heard us talk a lot about three zone model. Essentially the five zone model um, is the, way that we've always talked about this until the last few years. And I think it's really instructive. So um, let's break down the percentages one by one, um, just first in the the raw number, and then Megan can talk about heart rate. So zone one was 57% of his training. Zone two, 20%. Zone three, 14.5%. Zone four, 4.6%. Zone five, 3.8%. So what you'll see there, a lot more at the low end than the high end um, by a ex pretty extreme margin. And that makes sense given the quantity of time that he spent training. I mean, yeah. given the fact that he's training for 1,200 hours a year, if we were seeing a lot in zone three, zone four, zone five, that would be scary. Yeah. I think it would be worrisome for his like overall adaptation of physiology. And he just wouldn't be killing. Yeah, exactly. He be, wouldn't be good. He, yeah, he wouldn't be as good as he is because he's such... He'd be uh, an overtrained meat sack. Yeah, he would. Wait, you're allowed to use it and I'm not? <laughs> I think we're batting. I think he, it's like 45 to 2 in terms of usage at this point. Okay, well, I'm a meat sack and you're a carrot sack. <laughs> Let's be clear here. Um, okay, so uh, do you want to get into the heart rates that are just approximations here? Yeah, I think it's helpful actually because as we talk about zones, not everyone might know what like their heart rate relates to and zones are going to be different for every single athlete. Yeah. Um, but if you break this down, so in terms of an athlete who has an approximate lactate threshold heart rate of 177, this would how the zones would relate. So zone one would be under 142 heart rate, zone two between 140 to 
142 and 158, zone three between 158 to 169, zone four, 169 to 177, and then zone five above 177. And this is very, there's tons of different ways to yeah. calculate zones, um, you know, different watches, different different schools of thought, different philosoph- different training philosophers yeah. will use different metrics, but this is commonly how we think about it. But again, lots of different ways to get at that. Yeah, and they didn't have this on the Coro site, so Megan and I sat down and were like, okay, which model do you think they're using? So it was clearly a threshold model, and we assume Killian's around 177 based on some of the screenshots, but these numbers are approximations, but I think that they're generally close. The one thing that might vary, differ is that perhaps zone three is a little bit lower. So Megan was saying 158 to 169. It's possible that it has a lower upper bound than that, just based on some of the ways Killian has talked about training in the past. Um, either way, zone one, that 57% of training it might be under 142. It might even be under like 135, depending on the numbers we're using. That is extremely low. So let's talk about zone one training to start. Holy shit, he is spending so much time there. And that overlaps with how his um, training diaries from the 2019 season looked. Um, And I think that this is the number one takeaway for all athletes. For 50% or so of your training, maybe 40 to 50%, you might not get up to 57. No such thing as too easy. Just go out there and chill. That is where the aerobic development happens. It is what lets you build volume. It is where the magic happens in the mitochondria. Just go for it very easily. I was waiting for the mitochondria to come up. Oh, it yeah. is truly the the mitochondria party in zone one. It's great. Also, I feel like it's a general party. Like zone one training to me is fun. Yeah. Like it doesn't hurt. It shouldn't hurt. It's kind of where you're out there just adventuring, seeing the world. And it's great for recovery rates too. I mean, it really sets up your ability to train in those higher zones. And, you know, while at the same time laying down that foundation of yeah. mitochondria. And if you look, I mean, one of the magical things about Killian is that I'm using magical a lot. Clearly, Killian to me is like this super elf that has been sent to conquer mountains. See, you say magical, I say incredible. We can do a cheers. Perfect. Um, But one of the most cool things about him, the most magical things you might even say, is that he has done this for an extended period of time already. He has been at the very top level of sport for so many years. He was winning UTMB back in the 2000s, early 2000s, or mid 2000s. And, you know, he's still rocking it now. He set a course record. And I think you would only see that with this much zone one. And that's what we see in athletes. Athletes that do have longer careers are spending a ton of time in lower level zone one. Even with myself, um, I'm still progressing 16 years after I got serious. And what I do notice is like, I chill so much around 130 to 135 heart rate on my runs. And sometimes even lower, sometimes 115 heart rate on these doubles that we talk about. And it has been instrumental in my growth. Like aerobically, I'm getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And I think the magic of training is we focus so much on the top 15% of your work or 20% of your work and not enough on the bottom 50%. So, hey, bottom 50%, you can chill. It can be fun. It can be relaxed. You can get like, you know, a little fountain drink out there. It can be so fun. And I think zone one is a great sign of athletic maturity too. Yes. I think, you know, I, over time, I, as I've matured as an athlete, I probably used to spend like 2% of time in zone one, <laughs> embarrassingly in college. And that number has grown exponentially with time. And I think that's just really the sign of a maturing athlete. And I think we see that pattern all the time. Like college teams fucking hammer themselves. And there's a reason they're all retired by the age of 25. It's because they ha- they don't make this transition. So it's like, we always call it the inverted U where you start out with all this zone two, zone three work on your easy days. And eventually either you break and you quit the sport or 
drops down the other end and you're going easy all the time. Your paces drop again. And so there's no reason to go through that inverted U unless you're just starting out, in which case maybe there is. If you've been doing this a while already, just be like, okay, ego gone, Strava gone if I need to, zone one time, activate. It's not a lot of fun being an inverted U. No. Inverted U is never a good descriptor. But zone one is fun. Zone one is really fun. I love zone one. It's fantastic. Uh, let's move on to zone two. So yes. Killian spent 20.2% of his time in zone two. Um, I think that that makes, so zone two is what we consider more of like the classic quote unquote easy moderate running. Yeah. In, I think it makes sense for him as a high volume athlete to spend this amount of time. I think perhaps athletes that are a little bit lower volume, this zone two could be a little bit beefier, you know, letting the heart rate work up a little bit more on uphills, getting a little bit more of that like aerobic bang for the buck. But given that Killian is spending 1200 hours a year training, if he spent a lot more in zone two, he might be pushing over training. Yeah. And I mean, it's a pretty low heart rate for a normal person, right? Like 140s, let's say is is zone two. And um, I, I think a lot of the times people that are lower volume can get a huge benefit from spending a ton of time here. Um, and this is still considered in the easy part of the framework. Like when we say 80% of your training should be easy, we essentially mean zone one and zone two for the most part, though it's a little more complicated. Um, and I think often though, we don't break down what that 80% entails. And what we're saying here is like 50%, 30% is a solid mm-hmm. breakdown for most athletes, particularly chill athletes. But the problem is, and why Killian thrives off of like 20%, which is lower than you might see in other places, is imagine what happens when an athlete gets really efficient, how hard they have to push to get into this zone. So as wild as it is, a pro marathoner that runs like, let's say a 210 marathon might be running 530 or 540 pace in zone two, firmly in zone two, comfortably in zone two. But we know from training theory that if you run 530 or 540 pace every day, even if you're a professional athlete, you're going to break down and you're not going to be a professional athlete for long. A ton of biomechanical stress. And yeah. I think actually that's where we see a dichotomy between road athletes and trail athletes is trail, trail runners are training more on hills. Definitely. And hills, it's you you take away a lot of those biomechanical forces and the heart rates can wander up a little bit more. And so I typically see a little bit more of zone two in trail athletes and especially like advanced trail athletes yeah. just because it's not coming with that biomechanical risk. Yeah. And so zone two is a lot more... Um, free for most people. Like when what we're saying about zone two for pro athletes is probably zone three for most most athletes mm-hmm. in terms of risks. Like most athletes won't be having many risks in this area. Um, and so you can spend a good bit of time there, but make sure that 80% of your training is in those two zones. That is backed up in the studies on runners that we've mentioned. Um, they were all finding 80 to 85% um, in cyclists, uh, 90% sometimes and when the higher volume athletes and in cross-country skiers. Basically every endurance athlete that has been um, at a high enough level enough to Mm -hmm. be tested has that much in zone ones and zone two where things start to get a little cool and interesting are zones three and zones four um this is more traditional tempo training when we're talking about zone four but then like kind of gray area you might have heard said for zone three gray area is not a great term i feel like if you're not familiar with that term it's tossed around in running physiology lingo as like danger zone danger zone yeah, yeah yeah but it doesn't have to be and i think that that's the big place where we've made huge leaps in training theory so with Killian, again, this is just a snapshot, but he was like 14.5% of his time in, in the gray area. And perhaps that's from running up hills, perhaps that's from moderate workouts, but whatever it's from, as we're going more into how athletes actually train, they're spending a lot of time in zones three and low zone four rather than pushing zone four and zone five. So it's not you go easier, you go hard and nothing in between. In fact, it's like you go mostly easy, some moderate and a very little bit hard. And seeing Killian's training, it's like, oh my gosh, this is very cool because it's validating every single physiology study that's out there, which makes sense because he's 
you know, the boss of physiology. And that little bit hard that you're referring to is zone zone five. Yeah. And zone five is what we think of as like more classic view to view to max style workouts. And Killian actually spent a decent amount of time in zone five. So he yeah. spent 3.8% of his time in zone five. And that being said, I think, you know, he raised Sierra's and all's during this time. So certainly a lot of that yeah. could be coming from Sierra's and all. Maybe it's all coming from Sierra's and all. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he, he had an incredible performance there. So, I mean, I think arguably a good chunk could be coming from that. But to contextualize, I think sometimes it's hard to think about like okay like what does 3.7 percent mean yeah so when you do the math on that um it's so like if you take a 12-hour training week and think about like 3.7 3.8 percent that's like 27 minutes which is a lot which is a lot yeah. because if you think about doing like a five by three minute hill workout you're hitting you're hitting that like vo2 max or what we're classifying as 177 plus heart rate in this particular circumstance probably for like a minute in each of those reps. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's actually a pretty substantial amount of time in zone five. Yeah. So, you know, I think the big lesson there, even if you're not drawing huge conclusions from this training, is that having intense work within ultra builds is still good. Um, so if it's good in ultra builds, it's definitely good if you're doing shorter races. So this includes a lot of the sexy workouts we talk about. It probably includes some amount of strides. Um, you can incorporate that throughout the week. It doesn't have to be a ton though. Um, and that's why this really does align with the research as I was saying. So this is a five zone model that Killian was using and Koros was using. Um, but we often talk about a three-zone model because that's what the exercise physiology research actually uses to give terminology. So in that three-zone model, zone one is like easy to study. Zone two, and that includes zone one and zone most of zone two in the five-zone model. Zone two is a wide band for threshold. So let's think zones three and four. And zone three is above threshold. So upper end of zone four and zone five. Uh, the distribution within those zones is how physiology research talks about this. And Killian's training that he demonstrated in this Koros thing is strongly pyramidal. That means tons of zone one. He is all about zone one. He has a good amount of zone two and then a small amount of zone three. And that's how we should all think about our training um, is that Got to be mostly easy, but then you can have a solid amount of moderate. You can even build that up. Killian is almost bordering on a threshold approach to training. Um, and then just a little bit at that top end that is focused and has a purpose. And we're going to do a sexy science ahead on Norwegian training. Oh, yeah. We talked all the time about Norwegian training and different... I mean, I think part of it is because the Norwegians are so open with their training. Yeah. And so we have kind of a bias in terms of what training logs and training programs we're actually seeing. But they have a strong pyramidal approach as well. Yeah. And that's something that we've really tried to tailor in our personal style. But I think when you break it down in terms of like recommendations, maybe that's really helpful in terms of guiding the, guiding what the listeners should think about in terms of general takeaways from this. Definitely, yeah, because I think what's so cool about this is you almost never get heart rate data from professional athletes like this. So we have just a snapshot. We are extrapolating a lot from a small little bit here. Um, but I think it's really cool because those heart rates then provide proxies from which we can interpolate to ourselves and our athletes and um, things like that. And so, you know, the fact that it aligns with the research is just icing on top of the cake. It's so fun. So when I think about it, I think about, okay, like let's talk about 50% of training very easy. Yeah. And that that's fun. Yeah. I mean, that's the time when you go out there and you just get to like be a free spirit on the trails. It's um, like just a time to just like connect and work those mitochondria. Yeah. It's great. And then I think about 20 to 30%, and this adds up to the 80% idea of like easy or mostly easy, um, of being in that like 20 to 30% in that mostly easy to, easy to study state. Definitely. Um, and then I think the 20 to 30% has a lot of room for flex based off of your total mileage. Yeah. If you are a higher mileage athlete, I think, you know, having more of that being on the easier end versus if you're a lower mileage athlete, okay to let that heart rate drift up a little bit um, on hills and to allow things to kind of, you know, to really just like boost that those aerobic gains. Then I think about 15 to 25% moderate to moderate hard yeah. and then 5% hard or fast. And I think it's really helpful to break it down and Killian's structure looks a lot like that. Yeah. And so, you know, it gets a little complicated 
especially with that middle zone. So 15 to 25%, that's a wide band. The 25% would be athletes that are underdeveloped and just can't help but get their heart rate up every time they run. And in that case, you're going to need to let it go up or you won't improve at running. And that's the complicated part of this. But if you're an advanced athlete, it can be 10 or 15%, depending on how you design it. And the cool part of training theory is so much of what varies amongst coaches and athletes is just in that band, is how you use that time, how you structure it. Um, And so, you know, I think everyone's kind of in agreement about how you optimize long-term growth with mostly easy training. Where people disagree is in how you optimize how those, that aerobic system translates into output via the faster stuff. And so that culminates in 5% harder or faster. You still need to be biomechanically and neuromuscularly efficient. So we emphasize stride so much. In one of these weeks, it might be less than 1% of your total training time, but I think it has you know a huge uh, disproportionate amount of importance. And so make sure you're still developing your speed, even as you think about your aerobic system and its development all the time. As you were saying that, I was going to put an estimate that that 1% of time accounts for maybe 30%, even 20, 20 to 30% of running growth. Yeah. Well, maybe not in someone like Killian, because in Killian, he's so, it gets back to our VO2 discussion the other week. Like, Athletes that are unlimited by VO2 max do not have these concerns, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. For the most part. Like, they need some of it, but not very much. Like, you, you know, they have essentially a big uh, ga- gallon of gasoline. And if you take a match near that, of course, it's going to blow the fuck out. It's going to be good to go. Um, I don't know why you're blowing up gasoline here. <laughs> but, um, you know, for most people, that is a huge limiter. And if you're mm-hmm. not developing that constantly, you're going to get fucked real quick. You're just going to get slow at the same types of heart rates. Well, I think there's two different things that you're talking about developing there. One is the raw and natural speed. Yeah. And I think Killian has that. Definitely. And then the other two is the raw and natural high VO2 max. And I think for a lot of athletes, developing those two can actually be two separate processes. Yeah. But I think Killian has natural talents in both of those. And so he doesn't necessarily even yeah. need to work that. Yeah, definitely. And so where does this vary from what you might have heard? Um, so pyramidal, you know, there's a moderate has a lot more space in modern training theory than it might have had when you learned about training, if you learned about it 10 years ago. Um, but the other approach would be called polarized, where you have a higher amount that's harder fast. And that still has a place, um, but just pulse it in. So if you're going to pulse it in, make it like a short focus and then periodize back towards aerobic development. Or if you're doing like a mile or a 5k race, you're going to want more of that probably up to even 10 to 15%. But don't go over that because once you go over that, like your aerobic system is going to erode. And since the aerobic system is at the core of all performance, 800 meters and up, you need to constantly be developing that to even get a whiff of your ultimate potential like Killian has over the course of decades. It's really fun to put in those aerobic gains too. Yes. I mean, I think it's like the idea that you're building this big foundational energy. There is, we actually got a Patreon question. We're answering a lot of Patreon oh, yeah. questions on this podcast. Well, speaking of, patreon.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. So much fun there. Actually wrote all about the Killian uh, analysis there. Uh, we're answering questions all the time. So yeah, you want to do this? Let's do this. This is a question on heart rate and I think it yeah. actually builds really beautifully on this like five zone and three zone discussion and just thinking about even the differences between row athletes and trail athletes so let me read this question i'd be curious to hear your take on lactate threshold on flat versus hills i haven't found a ton of information online on the topic the reason i ask i'm not the quickest runner but feel i have a good engine typically finishing in the top third of the three by 50 kilometers i've entered this year i've only done the lt test via garmin on a track it's currently 173 beats per minute at a recommended 444 kilometer pace Sustaining that pace on flat is hard at that heart rate. Mm. However, on a hill, I feel completely different. On a long hill, my heart rate is regularly greater than 175 for long periods of time. I get that sustaining that will build lactic acid and I will likely struggle. But the way I feel in that moment is very different. I can chat, I can breathe comfortably, I can eat while on the go, etc. I feel like I could go on for hours if it were just uphill. Though sustaining that heart rate on a flat and I'm pretty wrecked. 
such a fascinating question. I, I think gets to the heart of how this stuff is actually really complicated for most people because what he's saying there, like he's saying his LT heart rate is 173 flat. It's not. Like that's not his aerobic limitation because he's talking about holding greater than 175 and he can feel like he can chat for hours. Um, aerobically, he clearly has the um, ability to go harder. His biomechanical musculoskeletal you know, neuromuscular systems are not equipped to put that out on flat ground, which you don't need to unless you're doing flat races. Like, yeah, you want to develop it a little bit with strides and things like that, um, but you don't need to be constrained by what that number is telling you on flat because what you can do on ups should translate aerobically in the same way to flats. And so you, what this athlete can probably afford to do is push themselves a little bit harder than they might assume they should based on that information when they're running on flat ground. And then also translate a lot of your workouts to hills. Like hills are where it's at. Oh, hills are such a great way. I actually think about this in the comparison of biking. Yeah. So, and we've talked about this in recent episodes that a lot of runners, when they go to do bike workouts, have a hard time getting their heart rate up high yeah. because they're, you know, they're not using their upper body. Maybe it, perhaps their leg musculature is not as developed for the bike. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it takes time to build that power over time. But running hills is great because it's really like, you know, your body is requiring so much muscular output and demand yeah. that it jacks that heart rate up and it's a way to get in these greater lactate gains in a way that doesn't feel quite as taxing sometimes as running on flat ground or at least feels more sustainable so it's a great way to get in workouts and it's why it's a staple you know hill workouts are a staple of a lot of the programs that we write yeah i mean you can see the offset there and why it would create problems if this athlete did a ton of flat workouts so if they're like okay well i know i can push this hard i should do a lot of flat workouts they get hurt very quickly most likely because they're clearly their mechanical system is not adapted to handle that that's why their heart rate's lower so, so I, when we had that VO2 discussion the other week, we're like, hey, make sure your ability to put out power on hills stays high. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not because hills are magic. It's because on hills, athletes will usually optimize their actual output rather than on flats where they'll be chasing optimization. And in that process, they'll be inefficient and likely get hurt. And that's a huge problem. And I think hills, like over time though, the goal also too is to make the, that biomechanical nature of running on flats more efficient Definitely. so that you're, I mean, I think, you know, true, true athletes that are great at doing both trails and roads, like have, Killian, like Killian, exactly, have similar lactate threshold heart rates on both. Yeah. And the goal I think is to do the hills, to build the power while also doing strides and keeping the speed reinforced so that you can work to equalize those two over time. Definitely. And so that's where strides come in. Mm-hmm. And enough flat workouts to develop this just don't like overdo it because you know in that like really terrible valley of being inefficient on flats um, and having a really strong aerobic system that's where like every injury lies and so um that's why strides are the gateway and then you ease in over time and try to see if you can bring that together let's do one more uh heart rate question actually because we got some great heart rate questions and i think this is almost its own topic this Um, is like a heart rate episode i love it well it's gonna get so many listens because you put heart rate in a fucking title and people love it true it's really sexy but you know what's also really sexy is running without a watch that's true and as much as we'd love talking about like zones and heart rate and things like that data-free runs are also great well if you're feeling like overloaded or overstressed, toss the watch, toss the heart rate, run by feel. So we have, I mean, it's kind of like killing. You got to make love to the mountains and be science driven at the same time and recognize your boundaries and barriers of both. Yeah. I think it's all about, you have to read the manual on how to make love and then (laughs) make love naturally and openly and artistically. Right. Yes. And so this is us reading the manual. We're just talking, we're not talking about you should ever be monitoring your heart rate even. This is a way to think about how uh, the principles actually are applied, whether you're using heart rate or not. 
because the body's doing this whether you're measuring it. So here's a question. Hi, finally typing my heart rate related question here. A little background over the last four years, I've stuck to just feel-based running and it's worked well. I've improved both mileage and time, also got better at managing efforts. I usually have a normal resting heart rate around 50 beats per minute. During the conversational runs, my heart rate tends to drift into 160s, even for easy runs. Last all-out 5K in 2008, my chest strap recorded at 209 beats per minute max R8. A few months ago, my half marathon PR averaged 190 plus beats per minute over 92 minutes. So my easy pace kind of matches my all-out efforts. The question is, in your athletes, do you see higher heart rate causing too much stress long-term? Do you suggest any changes in training for these cases or just polarizing training by feel is good enough? Um, very interesting. I mean, it gets back to how every heart rate varies a ton. This athlete's oh. LT heart rate's probably 195, which is like Killian might, that might be higher than Killian's max. We see so much natural genetic variation in yeah. heart rates. And if your heart rate doesn't align to the classic like heart run, heart rate model, there's so many different ways of class of like naturally calculating this, whether it's 220 minus age for max heart rate, et cetera. Yeah. If your heart rate doesn't lie there, it's generally not an issue. We see tons of genetic variation. That being said, sometimes if athletes have a max heart rate of 220 and above, I'm like, you know, go see a cardiologist yeah. and just make sure, especially if anything is symptomatic. So, um, you know, make sure you have a full full and, and um you know good bill of health but otherwise like we see a ton of variation what i would say though is that it's all about personal percentages Definitely. um and so you can just kind of steer the personal percentages but i would also make sure the data are good yeah. so you know he says he's using a chest strap so i assume this is a, a a like you know a working chest strap yeah but sometimes i've looked at heart rate data and i'm like this is totally <laughs> bogus it's just reading cadence so also make sure the, the input of the data is yeah too. and i mean i think for this athlete their personal percentages really line in with what we're talking about here so let's say their lt heart rate so what they can hold for about an hour is a, around 190 or a little higher um if they're hitting 160 on their runs totally fine um when we said 50 percent of all your training should be really easy essentially that means like 80 ish percent of your lactate threshold or easier um so th that's a little easier than that but just barely so what i say to this athlete is be aware that you might want to slow down some of your training a bit um you know go out there and just jog a little more. Um, but for those conversational runs you mentioned, totally fits within the zone two model um, from before, and you don't have to worry about it at all. Clearly, your feel is dialed. You can put the heart rate monitor away. Maybe you spot check again in the future if you want. Um, but as long as you slow down some of your runs, this is ideal training. This is right in the sweet spot. And then to answer the question about stress, I think we often don't see a difference in performance in terms of an athlete who has, who can get a max heart rate of 180 versus an athlete who has a max heart rate of 209. Yeah. Like, you know, the heart, the body, the cardiovascular system have all adapted. And so there's not one better or worse. And so I don't think you're accumulating more stress in your body by having a heart max heart rate of 209, as long as there's not some sort of like underlining cardiology pathology. Yeah, definitely agree. And again, leave your heart rate monitor at home. Just remember 50% of your training goes so fucking slow. And then the rest of it, it'll fit in with the general framework. Um, I think what we're trying to do today is say, hey, Killian, and this snapshot does this. He also does it in all of his training logs. Um, every athlete you see that's progressing long-term does it. So you can just slow that shit down, man. It oh, has some fun. It's so fun to slow it down. Listen to music, listen to podcasts, listen to David say meat sack on repeat. <laughs> it's great. Am I going to be saying it on repeat? We should make it into a rap song where like someone remixes it. Oh, like a DJ meat sack, meat sack, meat sack, meat sack. <laughs> like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. Listener Corner is extra special. Please stick around if you're um, interested um, because I think that this person's journey um, made me cry a little bit. Um, so I'll read this one. Is that okay? Yeah. 
Great. I came to the podcast for the sexy science and stayed for the human experience. By shaping your messaging for everyone, your recognition that many elite athletes are outliers and your body positivity, and David, especially your vulnerability with Bondi and from a guy's perspective, you've helped me really feel like an athlete and a runner. To give you some perspective, I'm a 36-year-old guy and have been wearing extra large clothes since about the fourth grade. I never saw myself as a runner or imagined being a runner. I played football like most kids in Western Pennsylvania, through which I developed an early hatred of running as punishment and messed up relationships with food and body image, overeat to stay bulky, run on a treadmill in trash bags slash sweatsuits to make weight. Fast forward like 20 years. When my superhero wife decided to run ultras, I joined her on the trail and fell in love with trail running. But insecurity and shame crept in often, especially at the start line for trail races. I hold my own as a mid-back-of-the-pack runner for now, but I don't look like most trail runners, and most running bland crows are too small for my body as it is now. What is this? An XL for (laughs) ants? That's hilarious. Um, Both of these factors often make me feel like I literally don't fit in the community or the sport, even as welcoming as the people tend to be. However, your constant messaging of shooting my shot, loving myself, and that I really am a runner and athlete has emboldened me to put myself out there as I am and focus on my performance no matter what the mirrors, store window reflections, or childhood memories of sweaty treadmills say to me. I'm currently using the trail half marathon training plan you wrote for Toronto Magazine, and I've never felt better or more like an athlete than I do now. And that's saying something because I was in the CrossFit cult for like five years. <laughs> so thank you so much for being the incredible coaches and humans you are. Wishing you all the best. That's a beautifully written email. Oh also really funny too. Sorry, yeah. I was laughing. I was reading it on here as you were reading it, and I started laughing ahead of time. So sorry about that. <laughs> it was so good. As he bears his soul. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Like seeing this, it is such a reminder that, you know, when we talk about everything we're talking about, talking about Killian, like the same physiology applies to everybody. And um, it's something I always try to ground myself in in understanding coaching or whatever. Anyone that goes out and runs up a hill is feeling the same things, is going through the same sensations, is having the same biochemical reactions. I almost said meat sack and I didn't. (laughs) Yes. Um, And through that shared experience is why athletics is so magical. So yeah, you might look different than someone else, but that's beautiful because we all do. And you're enough as you are, and you are perfect as you are um, as an athlete, as a human and everything else. And I think body image, like how we think about our bodies and the fact that we like, it becomes a heightened sense of importance to us is ubiquitous. Yes. The number, I mean, I think we talk about it so much on this podcast. Sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, have we like, have we like overshot this point? And I don't think we have because it is so common and such a like universal part of being human. And it impacts men, women, non-binary, folks everyone and I think we just hear from a diverse range of listeners on this and really grateful for him sharing his story and reaching out and excited for the future he has ahead yeah he's going to take that crossfit that crossfit fitness by storm and I'm so pumped and just like the pro athlete discussion celebrate your body you know we've said before cellulite makes champions muffin tops make legends whatever you have is perfect as it is and even as you strive to improve as an athlete and yes your body may change um it just is an evolving perfection rather than moving towards something that is you know makes you more worthwhile because just as you are right now you're perfect you're enough as you are what does the carrot filled baby bump make (laughs) if if cellulite makes champions what is this thing making i have i've got both so i can tell you what it makes and i can tell you like right after the podcast when you sprint to the bathroom (laughs) drop some worms off (laughs) awesome uh do you like that podcast i think that was a great that was really fun thank you for if you got to this point thank you so much you endured a lot of heart rate a lot of other discussions seriously thank you we love you all and all of your bodies and everything else huzzah woo